Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. It is the last show of the year, and what a year it's been. From Anacone to Arias, Kennan to Kafelnikov, Murray to Mortaglu, and Smith to Sa. We heard from so many amazing voices, and we also found ourselves in some amazing places. Speaking with James Blake at Miami, Belinda Bencic at the Aurora Games, Jim Courier at the New York Open, and Mary Carrillo at Indian Wells. We spoke with the master racket technician, Roman Prokis, at the shop where I once worked, and with Bianca Andrescu in the tunnels underneath Arthur Ashe Stadium. Our guests have been generous with their time, entertaining with their stories, and enlightening with their insight, and we cannot thank them enough. We also couldn't have done all these interviews without support from our sponsors, as well as from our individual patrons. You guys are the best. And last but certainly not least, we want to thank you, our listeners. Your feedback and support has been crucial, and you're spreading the word critical to the success of Under Review. 2019 was a blast, and we cannot wait for 2020. So we thought we'd round the year off with a guest who hasn't won any Grand Slams or coached any number one players. He doesn't run a television network or wear a Hall of Fame ring, but he lives and breathes tennis, and we think he's definitely one of the most interesting voices in the sport. You see him at every major tennis event in Southern California and many beyond. And at these events, he's always in the right place, talking with the right people, and always with one eye steadfast on the action on the court. He came up in L.A. in the 70s, honed his craft at UCLA, and turned pro during the sport's golden years. He played, practiced, and palled around with legends such as McEnroe, Connors, Borg, and the late Vitas Gerolaitis. Now he's the preeminent tennis ambassador of Beverly Hills, providing VIP tennis experiences on the most beautiful tennis courts on the planet to CEOs, celebs, and other significant people. LA tennis insider Tony Graham is going to tell us which world number one he pistol whipped in a practice match while he was matriculated at UCLA. He's going to tell us how higher ranked players who are grinding it out on the tour react when you're flown into a tournament on the private jet of a country music superstar. And he's going to tell us about his obligations as the tennis pro for the Playboy Mansion. We caught up with Tony high above Beverly Hills at the infinity court he presides over at the iconic Los Angeles home forever memorialized in the Big Lebowski, the Sheets Goldstein residence. This episode is sponsored by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. We are on literally one of the nicest properties in the world, on the tennis court overlooking Beverly Hills. LA, man, you get the helicopters. Yeah, it's crazy. We didn't expect the helicopter. We forgot about the helicopters. We're heading to the 405. Scotty, are we going? You ready to rock? Ready to rock. Come on, man, let's rock. Gentlemen, you hear with that silky voice is one of the most inside guys there is. He's an L.A. guy. He's an L.A. player. He was a UCLA Bruin. He finaled the NCAAs. He played pro tennis. And he is an L.A. fixture in tennis, Tony Graham. Got my whole history there. Jeez, I hope we left something for later. My but man, that, I hope so. That, uh, is, for, that is me, yes. <laughs> first of all, thank you for letting us come here and, and uh, speak with us. It's just tremendous. What a great place to speak from. This view is uh, enthralling. So in order to keep things moving and cover a wide range of topics, we do a five-set format. Our first set is called the Off the Court Report, but you basically live and breathe tennis every day, your life. And we are sitting on the nicest court in L.A., arguably one of the nicest courts in the world. It is something that you can only dream about. And first of all, you run this? 
Well, it's, it's my friend's house, James Goldstein. For our listeners, Jimmy Goldstein is the older gentleman who dresses the funkiest you ever saw, and he is at every big basketball game courtside. The guy has got the funkiest style going. Fantastic. He is an anomaly, one of a kind. And yes, it was his vision to build this tennis court. And if our listeners out there could see what we're seeing, he'd really appreciate it. Uh, if they follow me on Facebook, they've seen plenty of pictures of the Goldstein residence. Uh, they call I'm, this the Sheets Goldstein Sheets residence. Sheets Goldstein, and, and I am the director of tennis here, so we've uh, mapped it out where this is where uh, I teach. What is the story behind the house? Well, it's a, it's a John Lautner house, who's a very famous architect, and Lautner's done a number of houses in and around L.A. He did the Bob Hope house in Palm Springs, very famous house there. How old is this property? For Sheets, Mr. Sheets, the house was built in 61, and I'm not sure why he didn't stay, and then Mr. Goldstein moved in in 71, and Jim's had it for the last 48 years, constantly improving it, constantly building upon it. Uh, this is called the, 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 the new structure over here, the new project with this tennis court and this nightclub down below, which is pretty amazing. Nightclub down below, tennis club overlooking Beverly Hills, nightclub down below. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. They've all been here, all the big stars have been here. And so it's a party at night, but during the day, this is just a beautiful court, Tony. It's impeccably maintained. And how do you get your clients? I work with the hotels here in town. See, most of the hotels don't have tennis courts. And so uh, this beautiful court is what attracts them. So if somebody's at the Peninsula Hotel, for example, they go to the concierge. Yep. They say, we want to play tennis. What happens? Oh, well, they call me. You know, it depends if they want the VIP experience or if they just want a tennis experience. I'm the VIP experience. I price, I price it up. So, and, and then if they want to go play somewhere right. else. Was that, that's a grand, a grand a shot? Well, it varies. It depends on who. I mean, I'm not going to price them out. Can't price them up. Yeah, you know, I'd re I would like to have the repeat business, but you know, I'll price, I, I definitely price it up. And uh, well, this, this, listen, this is an exclusive experience. Man. There, there you go. Forget about it. This is incredible. Uh, people will come up here and say, "Wow, not only was that tennis pro great, but that house, that court, it's just amazing." You know, and that's that's the differential. There's a lot of good pros here in town. There's a, and, and you know, and, but this court is what the, really the, the the VIPs are looking for now. I follow you, you're one of the great follows. What are some of the highlights of your year? Uh, I did go to Hawaii for a senior event. I was there with Tommy Haas, Philip Pousis, Michael Chang, and Marty Fish. So what do you mean you were there? You were just kind of just get, kicking it around? I've, I've worked with a lot of uh, varied groups, so I'd sold some of the VIP packages for the Invesco series, and so they I, had me over there. And you were large and in charge at Indian Wells, always right behind the court with Jimmy Goldstein. Yes, I am with Jim during the Indian Wells event. Uh, he's got a front row box. It's fantastic, because I, I love the tennis. But you're a former player. Like, when you go, you get you get laced up with, like, you know, former player guest badges. Like, how do you rock? The Open, I do. The US Open, I have uh, access to a credential. Uh, at the Indian Wells, I, I haven't really pressed for it, because the bottom line is, is our box seats, are, are, and our box is better than anything the players could have. It's funny that the players will come up to me and you know, once in a while, we'll have players come sit with us as, as, as our guest because the players can't get seats like that. Now, I'm telling you, man, you're always around and you're always in the best spot. Now, speaking of, what is your relationship with the Executive Tennis Academy? I'm a coach at the Executive Tennis Academy. Now, listen, for our listeners, this is one of the most inside things you could hear about. Uh, the Executive Tennis Academy, it's a hyper-exclusive tennis camp. Yes, it is. Uh, 44 executives from around the world. Bill Gates is there, but I can only mention his name because you don't know what the dates are of this event. And obviously for security reasons, they don't like to know where anyone like him is. So, uh, but he's one of our execs. So we have fantastic. By the way, Bill Gates loves tennis. That's exactly right. That's why he's one of the guys there. And how does he hit the ball? Uh, he's good. I mean, he's good. He's a, he's a solid 3-5. Uh, I won't quite say 4-0, but you know, he gets in there and competes and he'll play for, for hours and he loves the sport. I think it gets his mind off everything else or maybe the motion gets him, gets him thinking. It's at the Vintage Club in Palm Springs, correct? Palm Desert. And so we've got uh, 44 executives from, you know, the biggest shots down to guys that are hedge fund, uh, inv investors, people that own their own companies. And they get invited? 
Well, it's private. It is a private thing, but you know, you you can get referred. Let's say so. It, it would have to come from a referral because he's got a pretty, pretty tight niche group, and he's pretty loyal to his uh, kind of uh, b bonds of secrecy. And you and you guys, um, you get different high ticket oh, yeah. guys like Agassi comes, Sampras, isn't that right? Uh, we've had McEnroe, we've had Agassi, Tommy Haas. Uh, Woodford's come down, you know, those, but Woodford's one of the coaches, actually. He lives in, in the desert, and uh, Tommy, it's not a stretch. McEnroe and Agassi are the two favorites we've had as far as uh, on and that. It's, it's like a fantasy camp. Pretty much. For, and these, and these high-end executives, they're just at tennis camp. Well, it's hard work. I mean, it's five hours on Friday. It's 9 to uh, 12, and then 2 to 5, 2 to 5, 6 hours Friday. Same thing Saturday, 9 to 12, 2 to 5. And then Sunday, we've got it from uh, 9 to 12.30. So it's, you know, we've got a full set of massage tables. We've got the cryo tanks. We've got the cold cold tanks now where the guys can jump in the ice buckets. Six masseuse on time. And, and you just muckle back lobsters and steaks every day, uh, every the, night? The, the irony is, is after three days with the, one of the greatest chefs, Chef Monfred at the Vintage Club, uh, Love the guy. He's made everything that you could imagine eating in three days. You know, scallops, lobster, shrimp, steak, por pork, lamb chops, you name it. That at the end on Sunday when I leave, I just want a piece of pizza. <laughs> you, you, you overload on the heavy stuff. Everything, I mean, you've, you've, you've hit the max on every possible gourmet item that you could eat and, and do eat and would want to eat. And once again, as you're leaving, yes, you just would like uh, a, a tuna sandwich. You know, the other thing that you that I know about you is you are the director of the Beverly Hills Open. That's another inside. It's called the Beverly Hills Invitation. Sorry. And as it says in the words, people say, how do I get to play in it? Well, the title says it's an invitational, so you have to get invited. So I've run the event for 20 years. And, uh, and and that's a doubles tournament, pro-am, and the ams are heavy Beverly Hills hitters yes. that pay in. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you gotta pay to pay to play. And what's the what's the buy-in? You gotta tell us. Come well, on. this year it's uh, 3,500 bucks, which is still very reasonable compared to the Executive Tennis Academy, uh, which is about double that. And, uh, but you get a lot of bang for your buck. You know, you would get some nice swag for the players. They get uh, three dinner parties. They get a fantastic Sunday event catered by Wolfgang Puck. And that, that takes place at Jeff Palmer's court, correct? Uh, that takes place at Jeff Palmer's house, correct. Yes. And that's another one of the most high, uh, and heaviest courts there is. Yes. Actually, I'm playing some doubles later today at the Palmer Court, as we call it. So it's, uh, I go from here, from uh, the Goldstein's residence over to the Palmer Court. So it's not so bad. Uh, Tony just uh, moving and grooving uh, up these hills, Ben. <laughs> the hills have eyes. <laughs> the hills have rackets, hills have rackets. The hills got rackets and balls. Um, and that's it, man. And you live here, huh? You live here in the valley, is that right? I'm Sherman Oaks. Sherman I'm about Oaks. 15 minutes from here. I, I like to call it Beverly Hills adjacent. Tony Graham, Beverly Hills and Jason, let's move into our second set. Listen, I know you keep your eye on tennis. Uh, I know you have your ear on the street. I know you know what's going on. What are your impressions of the back end of this year? Let's start with the women. You know, obviously Bianca Andreescu has been incredible. Well, we had the honor of watching her win at Indian Wells. She came out of nowhere there and I sat front row and watched her win that, that was fantastic. As in the year before, sat front row watching Naomi Osaka win the Indian Wells Tournament and went on to win the U.S. Open. Oh, happened exactly what's happened with Andrescu this year. She's won Indian Wells and now she's won the U.S. Open. That's interesting. You know, uh, it's what's also interesting, Naomi Osaka's been nowhere. She's trying to figure it out. She didn't realize, I think, how much, uh, I don't want to say pressure, but how much maybe uh, she, she lose your, your sense of being because now she's, she can't go anywhere without being recognized or, or, or noticed. So that's part of the game. That's part of, your, that's part of the ticket. You I know? know, but Tony, when you're, a, when you're a number one player in the world, when you're a two-time back-to-back Grand Slam, you're not supposed to just fall right out of business, man. She had, a, uh, unfortunately, I was falling out with her coach. No one knows at the bottom of that whether he was owed money, paid money, didn't get paid, uh, which was, you know, upsetting to hear because he definitely... Oh, are your sources telling you that there was some kind of a money scenario? Definitely. Definitely big money that she owed him for his work, and I think she offered him a fraction of it, what his contract was, and so they had a... Where are you hearing this? Where are you hearing, where, where are you hearing I can't pin a, pin a name on it, but I've, I've heard it from few reliable sources and mm. it's been mentioned on the TV. I mean, not the 
brass tacks of it, but that, that, that they had a bad falling out. Well, she said that that it was never over money. Interesting. Uh, and, the, and he, you know, and he, uh, Sasha Beijing. I mean, this just this, this, it's amazing we're still talking about this. Um, <laughs> but he is with Mladenovic, so he couldn't have done anything that bad, right? Because he's still he's back on tour. I don't think he did anything wrong. I think I think that uh, she, you know she had the one to make a change. I've had that happen where I've coached a player, I've had success. And then the player said to me, he said, well, I feel like I need to make a change. I'll mention his name, Michael Joyce, a great kid. I coached him when he was younger. He's worked with Sharapova for years. And uh, I got him up in the rankings and uh, he said uh, I was too much like his dad. You freaked him out. <laughs> I guess he didn't want to work that hard. I'm not sure exactly what that meant, but you know, we're still friends to this day and that happens. When a player doesn't start to uh, hold up to their expectations, there's always got to be the fall guy. And it's the same thing in, in major league sports or if NFL or NBA, you know, the team starts losing, the coach is the first one to go. Listen, you're in the front row. Are you, was there anyone else on the, in women's tennis that uh, caught your eye this year that, um, you know, you, uh, yes. you, you, you stopped talking and you said, whoa, 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 let's watch this for yeah, a second. I like Amanda Anasimova. I think she's going to be the next uh, bright star. Uh, my you, my what, friend Gary Gary Swain, Max Eisenbud, they both uh, manager and representer. She's great. Gary Swain, longtime John McEnroe agent, like his agent from like 1978 or something, and, and Max Eisenbud, the president of tennis or the senior VP in charge of. He just got a big promotion at IMG. He runs the whole tennis program there now. Max and they have Annie Samova. Um, but, what, but what, what do you think of her ball striking? Well, she, she's great. Uh, I watched her play a year ago at Indian Wells, and she beat uh, Kavitova there. She got to like the third round, or maybe the round of 16 is the third round Indian Wells, which is fantastic, and was pulling for her. And then she got injured in uh, Miami, and then she uh, totally stepped up her game, getting to the semifinals of the French Open. She crushed Halep. She's had huge wins. She beat Sabalenka. Uh, she's beaten uh, Kvitova, like I said, and and uh, I'm, I'm not sure she had to pull out of the U.S. Open because she had a uh, family crisis. I think her father or well, uncle, well, grandfather. No, no, her father died. Her father. Well, yeah, that's quite no, serious. tragic. So that would be at a at anyone's age. That's uh, traumatic. But for for someone that's 19 years old or 18 years old, said. And I, I haven't heard uh, if she's back playing again. She's yet. back on tour. Uh, she's back. Okay. Um, she's, well, she's she going to be very tough. I mean, she is a clean striker of the ball. Uh, her serve gets a little suspicious. I think she needs to know know how to kind of reset the point. You know, you can't only just hit and then harder, harder, hardest. Once in a while, you've got to just mix it up. And once she gets that and a little bit learns a little bit more defense, I see her as a solid top ten candidate. Uh, other than that, Coco Golf came on to be quite a sensation there too. That got everyone's eyes, and it's great for American tennis. It's great for tennis in general. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting her at the U.S. Open. She couldn't have been nicer. I just said to her, "You got this today," and she was like, "Thank you." And you know, she just lights up like a, a, a Christmas tree. Um, let's go to the men. Did you know Joker had a bad shoulder? Um, these players do a good job of keeping under wraps, you know, their injuries. I mean, obviously, if stuff like that were to get out in the locker room, uh, for instance, if someone had a bad blister on their foot, yeah, I played. I mean, what does that tell me? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to drop shot the guy and make him run? I mean, that's ethically, you know, uh, strategically, that's a smart thing to do as a, as a sport, but, you know, as far as, you know, humility, no. But I did not know that the severity of his shoulder at all. I mean, because that really was the story, right? Because he he was on that side of the draw, and you know, Daniil Medvedev came through, right? Fed, Fed, you know, it was supposed to be Joker was supposed to play Warinka, to play Medvedev, to play Fed, to play Rafa, and then you know, obviously, Joker lost to Stan. He pulled out. Then Stan lost to Medvedev. You know, and Medvedev just, you know, and, you know. And oh, he's for real. I yeah. mean, he's a, he's a solid top Fed lost to Fed lost to Dimitrov, mm. who had a great run. And then Dimitrov lost to Medvedev. Federer had that match one still, too. It's interesting. I mean, there's so many matches at, at a big stage that Federer's been right in the thick of it and somehow it didn't come forward. But, uh, you know, we're always a Fed fan. Now, who I really like, who I've uh, got to know quite well, is this Riley Opelka. 
I think Riley's got huge game for a six foot eleven or a seven footer. He can move. Where'd you? How do you? How'd you get to know him? Come on, give us. I, I met him a few years ago at the U.S. Open when he was in the juniors, yeah. and I was uh, coaching, just randomly coaching. And I so my my locker, my my credential got me into the B locker room, which is the juniors locker room, and we just started chatting there. And since then, we just developed a relationship. I mean, I tell you what, we saw him at the New York Open. I mean, he's got incredible movement for that size of a guy. So we've been messaging each other and then we met at the US Open and just talked tennis for two hours. I'm very happy with his coaching staff. Jay Berger's done a great job. Jay picked him up when he was 240 in the world and Riley's 39 in the world right now. Riley's happy and he's got a great assistant coach. He's got a great physio, Gary Kitchell, who also used to work on McEnroe in the senior tour. So he's got a really solid team around him. And interesting enough, when I was talking to him, I had taken a few notes of stuff I wanted to address with him. And once I listened to him talk, his tennis IQ was so high and he was had it so together for someone that's 21 or 22 years old that I just I just listened and would ask a question, but I, I had not much to offer because he is very on top of things. And uh, as far as uh, training his body, as far as rehabbing his body, uh, getting rest, uh, his diet, just everything. So I expect big things from Riley Opelka. I think he's got a shot to go as high as he wants to, all the way. You do? Oh yeah, I think he's for sure top 10. Let's go into our third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. Where'd you grow up? Where does your tennis story begin? Uh, it's an interesting story. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. That's about 10 miles from here. Valley. Valley boy, all the way. Like right Sherman there. Oaks Galleria. Uh, right there. I'm about, about a mile and a half, two miles from the Sherman Oaks Galleria. Exactly. As, as, as valley boy as it gets. Did you hang out in that Sherman Oaks Galleria? Absolutely. I still do. I still go to the Arclight, the movies there. Sure. I love it. I see more celebrities at the, at the Gelson's, at the supermarket there, than I see in Beverly Hills. And I asked one of them, why is it you guys are over here? And they go, well, it's because we can afford it. You know, like even some of the celebrities, you know, can't even afford to live over in Beverly Hills. So, but my story is quite interesting. I played Little League Baseball and I uh, played third base, uh, batted a thousand one day and made a double play and my team lost, did everything I could. And so I went to my dad and I was like so disappointed. And he said, son, you've got to get into an individual sport. I was 11 years old. I started playing tennis at 12. Whoa, that's a late start. No kidding. And wow. I, and I was... That, if you tried tennis so late, how were you able to get so good? Just ate, drank, slept, breathed, dreamed tennis. I mean, that's it. I played, you know, twice a day, every day. I started off a wall, uh, and then I had a coach at our park, at Sepulveda Park. His name was Ed Saldivar, and he kind of homed me a little bit. But basically, I just spent a lot of time. I got good very quick. I mean, by the time I was 16... I was uh, a top 16-year-old. Uh, I was ranked number three in the boys' 16 in Southern California. So in four years, I'd gotten right to the top of the rankings there in Southern Cal. And do you play like Orange Bowl? Do you play like Kalamazoo. the Rolex? I played Kalamazoo. I won the Feed and Consolation at Kalamazoo in the boys' 16, so that made me finish seven in the United States, also in 1973. So I was a top 10 in the 1970, you look good, man. I was only two years old. <laughs> Damn, Tony. Yeah, it's crazy. You're older than you look. Uh, we won't say how old I am on the pod. But like uh, you, everyone can do the math. Tony looks great. <laughs> um, hang on a second. So you were one of the best players of the country, 16 years old. I was. Uh, Who were some of the names that you did battle with back then? Uh, that would have been uh, Howard Schoenfield, Perry Wright. Brad Gilbert. Okay, Brad played, but he was from Northern Cal. But he's younger than you. He's a few years younger. So when I'm saying, yeah, my age group, uh, Jay Christopher Lewis, he played Bruce Manson. He was a top player on the Pro Tour. Uh, Brian Teacher's two years older, so we didn't play with Brian. And uh, so the, out of my age in Southern California, I think I was one of the only few that went on to play professional tennis. Drew Gitlin, he went on to play professional Drew tennis. Drew Gitlin. Now, how did you end up at UCLA? How, what's the story? Well... I got good. My ranking was top 10 in the boys 16, yet I was too young. What happened is in school, they had a program where kids were graduating in January and they wanted everyone to graduate in June. So they offered them a chance to either go ahead or stay back a year. And I myself said, let me out of here. You know, let me out of this place. I'm, I want it out, which sounded great at the time, but my birthday's in October 
and yet I graduated in June, so I graduated high school at 16 years old. But you, you didn't take all the classes. Uh, yes. In high school, I did, yeah. You did? Yeah. You did the work? I did the work, sure. I mean, I didn't take trigonometry, math analysis, but I took the basics, uh, algebra and geometry, and and which put me then... You said you were a matriculating student. You weren't getting pulled out like Chucky Adams or Pete Sampras. No. You went to school? I went to school. Never had that uh, opportunity. And now what happened then is that was in the fall of 73, as I was too young to enter college. To, uh, I wanted to play at UCLA. I wanted to play at Cal. And were you already starting to bounce around, practicing with those with the teams, and, and were you already kind of in that loop? Got playing privileges at the LA Tennis Club, which was the hot tennis club back then, and that's where guys like Bruce Manson, Perry Wright, Howard Schoenfield, Chris Lewis, uh, uh, all the top juniors would go and play every day after school. We'd all practice with each other, so it was fantastic that they opened up the club for us to you know, practice with the other top juniors. And then at which point I um, went to Pierce College, for uh, 73 and at 74 season, I played number one on the team, and then I was still ahead of myself. So I, I, I wanted to go to UCLA, and the coach said, you still got a long way to go before you play for UCLA. Meanwhile, I was three years number one in high school, number one at Pierce College, and coach, uh, so I looked into going to Cal, Berkeley. And what had happened was, uh, uh, I went up there, I'd moved up there, I had a scholarship offer, I'd moved up there, and then it rained for like 10 days, and I said, well, how am I gonna get to be number one on the team if I can't practice? And I had like a six weeks off between quarters. So I said, I'm gonna go back to LA and practice. And sure enough, when I came back down to LA, the coach offered me a scholarship to UCLA. So I left, only thing I'm upset about that I left in San Francisco was all my vinyl records. <laughs> I left them, because I'd moved in with a couple college guys and I took my vinyls and I had a nice big milk case of vinyl records and they, they said, you're not getting those back. <laughs> they didn't give them back? No, they wouldn't give them back to me because I kind of kind of walked out on them. You sort of screwed them <laughs> a little yeah, bit. I did. Yeah. Now, listen, UCLA tennis, what was that like? Was Jimmy Connors coming into practice? Also, you were there when John Wooden was there. I was, that was amazing times. Uh, I remember seeing Troy Aikman walk around campus. I think he's a little younger than I am, but yeah, major stars. Uh, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabari was Lou Alcindor, but he's a little younger, Bill Walton. I was in UCLA in 76, and so we had um, Richard Washington, Marcus Johnson, they were top basketball players, Coach Wooden, and then uh, great track teams. But the tennis, you know, they didn't have the, any place for the pros to practice, so when, when they had the tournament, the Pacific Southwest played at UCLA. And when that would happen, the pros would come through and practice. You know, Ely Nastasi. I remember practicing with him when I was in college. Come on. Kicked his behind, but I was what? I was a good practice player. I was very good in practice. You I mean, kicked it. You kicked it. Like six one in practice one day, Nastasi, and I was like a sophomore at UCLA. When that was he? Was he angry when you took it to him, or he didn't? Was he just going through the motions? He didn't practice with me again. So. He did not. <laughs> so I don't know what that. I didn't really. Couldn't wow. Really do. A lot of what the, a win, man. You know, it was. Kind of crazy to think that these top pros were coming through. And, Tell us who else, who else? Uh, well, let's see, at that time we had... Uh, was Arthur Ashe over there? Would he come through? Yeah, was... but he would play more with a higher ranked guy. Like I think Fleming got to practice with Arthur. Jimmy Connors would practice there at the court. Sure, Jimmy would practice with Teacher or Fleming. So what number did you play at, at UCLA? 76, I played number six on the Jeez, team. Jeez, Tony. And I uh, had a great dual match record. I was 18 and three. Uh, thing was disappointing because in 76 they still had a uh, team format and that was in SMU in Texas so they sent four guys down Brian Teacher got injured and so they had to pull in the number five guy which was John Austin and so they sent John to SMU I'm number six I had an 18 and three dual match record aside from Peter Fleming I had the best record on the team and I uh, the team won, and I, I didn't get a ring. I'm still mad about that to this day. Come on. I played the whole year on the team, but I didn't go to the NCAAs, and you know I'm, I was a part of the team because they only weren't taking a team at that time. Uh, they were taking four players. So obviously a lot of my motivation when I was younger was um, displaced, whether it was, was uh, angry or I, I'm not, it wasn't jealous or envious. Sounds like you were. It sounds like you got screwed a little bit. Well, I did there, but the next year, I went from number six on the team to the finals of the NCAAs in singles. What number did you play through the season? I played three. Holy, so you were number three at UCLA and you got to the finals of the NCAAs? In singles, yeah. I did, <laughs> it was a pretty amazing run there. 
And with, I mean, we're, and you got you to gotta explain that. You, you go through the season, then the end of the season is when the individual tournament right. happens, right? And it was after the team tournament. So that year, the team, in 77, we finished uh, third place. And then, uh, then you go on to play the individual tournament. And I remember, I think I was down match point in the second round to a player from Pepperdine, Leo Palin. And then, you know, I, I had good wins though. I, I beat a guy from Georgia, Charlie Ellis in the quarters. I beat this guy, Bruce Manson from USC in the semis. And I uh, lost to a player named Matt Mitchell in the finals from Stanford. Matt Mitchell. And uh, now, um, the story I hear is that after you had that run, you just turned pro. Oddly enough, no. That's not true. No, see, okay. and I should have, and, and nor did Matt Mitchell. We both, you know, he was a winner, and he won. We both went back to school. I thought that the experience would do me well. I kind of was dreaming that, you know, I've, if I was going to be a big tennis star, that, you know, playing, coming back and defending some of my merits, defending uh, the National Collegiate Tennis Classic in Palm Springs, which I had won, and I did come back and defend that title. I'm the only two-time winner of the National Collegiate Tennis Classic, which I'm proud of. Uh, I had I did good my whole senior year. I mean, I had a great senior year. Do you graduate UCLA? No, I'm short. I think I'm like three or six units short. But oh, uh, you got to get that, man. What for? Just, <laughs> no for, a, for just, to, just to cross off the list. There's no no room on my wall for any more. Uh, if you're that close, you should try. I mean, you're right here. Anyway. Okay. I'll, I'll, make Hold a, on, so I'll, I'll make a mental note of that. All right, go back to school, Tony, right? <laughs> hey, man, if you're that close, you should close the show on that. Get the diploma. Um, uh, hang on a second. So, so how do you turn pro? Well, I, I went back to my senior year, and I still we – had, we had a better team in, in our senior year. Elliot Telsha was uh, the number – you know, we were number one fighting each other early on. But it comes the NCLAs. Elliot Telsha was seated two. McEnroe was one. John Austin was seated five. And I was seated eight. John McEnroe was at Stanford. Yes, he was. He won the whole NCAAs that year. That was after he got to the semis of Wimbledon the year before. He did amazing. The, the star is born. I still go back to the campus. I love it. I walk around the stadium, the track stadium, and I walk and watch the team. And we saw Billy Martin this weekend, coach at UCLA. You have a great relationship with UCLA. Yeah. Oh, You're yeah. UCLA Bruin, tried and true. Yeah, I earned, I earned my stripes there, as they say. So tell us, how do you go pro? Uh, th well, then that, ha that year at... Uh, 78, I was still top college player, even though I got beat early and I got upset by a guy named Steve Denton from, at, the, at the NCAAs. But still, I got to qualify or got picked for the Junior Davis Cup team. So the Junior Davis Cup team we traveled with that summer. And then at the U.S. Open, I, I, I turned pro. And you had some good moments as a pro. You finaled Stowe, Vermont? I did final Stowe. That was a good, good result. And you lost to Brian Gottfried. I did. And what year was that? Uh, that must have been uh, 81. Were you, were you finaled a pro event, your main draw, Wimbledon? Uh, one around at Wimbledon, one around at the U.S. Open. I um, won uh, a great story in Linz, Austria. I won a $25,000 tournament there. But the beauty of a $25,000 tournament, who would have thought in the corner of the stadium in Austria was a car? You know, that's everyone's dream is to win the car. You won the car? I won the car. What car was it? It was a Le Car Renault. A, a Renault? Yeah, Renault Le Car. It, it was like a, like a little Peugeot 104 Sport. It was a little car. And I, I didn't want to deal with the customs, and it was little. So I just remember after winning in my speeches, I, hit, I held up the keys. I dangled the keys to the crowd, and some guy came down and said, what do you want for it? And I said, if you bring me $8,100 bills tomorrow, the car's yours. And sure enough, I just gave him the keys for 8,000 bucks. Took another eight grand. Yeah, I took the money and, and, and fleed. Linz, Austria. <laughs> Linz, Austria is a great place. Won the doubles, too, so I definitely had a good, uh, good week that time there. Tony Graham cleaning up in Linz, Austria. <laughs> Shout out to Linz, Austria. Hell yes. Now I saw that you have a loss to Wojtek Feedback in Hilversum. Wow. I saw you have a loss to Connors in Hong Kong. Close, I took a set off, Jimmy. Tight match, that looked to me like. I saw you have a loss to McEnroe in Indy. Wow. What would you say your greatest moment on tour was? Was it Stowe? My best win, yes, yeah, Stowe. Because I beat Johan Creek, he was nine in the world at the time. That's a great win. And then I beat uh, Jimmy Arias. Two-time Australian Open winner, too, by the way. And Johan Jimmy Arias was just on his way up. He was 17 years old, highly touted 
Uh, and what happened is it rained and they moved our match indoors. And so that Jimmy was very upset because he couldn't stay far enough back. And Jimmy you know, couldn't I, change his grips. I was sticking him in the <laughs> net. I stuck him in those side nets every time I could on that indoor court. And, you just uh, served him right off the court. Pretty much. That was lucky. So, yeah, Arias and Creek were my two better wins. I mean, I had a win over a guy named Mark Edmondson in it's Australia. He was an Australian Open champion. I beat him on grass and uh, beat uh, Sammy Giamalva. And I heard that you and Trey doubles beat Vilas and Tyriac somewhere. We did, in uh, Zurich. Yeah, we did. Trey and I had a good win there. We beat Vilas and Tyriac. That was classic. We loved it. Trey Walke, he's been our guest. He is our friend. You know, it was an L.A. player, and you guys have known each other and been friends from the beginning of that. Oh, he's one of my closest friends. Trey and I lived together in 1975. He went to Cal for one year, and he turned pro. And then he came back to LA and operated his uh, traveling from here. And so we were roommates while I was at UCLA. And as, uh, as uh, small a world as it is, Trey was the one that introduced me to Vetus, Scarolitis. Hang on, and you guys beat Velos and Tyriac. I mean, that's no joke. Actually, Trey and I were very good because he had such good feel. And at the time, I was, could be more of a kind of a dominator. The power. So we had the feel and the power. It was fun. It was fun, it was fun to play with. Let me ask you how, do you, how would you describe your tennis? I was a chip and charge to get to the net back then. I was a bigger guy, 6'2". I think I played at 185, which is, was big at the time. And so I didn't want to run all day. So I was, you know, take the short ball, come into the net, and, and angle the volley. I mean, that was my strategy. First volley deep, second volley short angle, third vol, uh, dive if you have to. <laughs> and now, listen, I know that you were a bon vivant. You had a lot of fun out on the tour. <laughs> uh, would that be fair to say? Uh, I enjoyed life, sure. Not while I was playing as much, though. I tried, sure tried not to, but I definitely enjoyed life. But you and Vetus, you guys all had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, when, uh, you know, it was fun. I was fortunate to be able to hang out with uh, with McEnroe and with my, our dear friend Vetus and, uh, you know, with the tournament. So we would be normal professionals, go to but nice restaurants. You know, he loved, 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 loved London. He loved the Guinea. There was a restaurant there, a steakhouse. He loved going there. He, the you know, guinea. Yeah, he loved it. Big steaks. And Venus was making a lot of money, so you, would he just take the check, and you guys were just like... Very generous. Entouraging it. Very generous. Uh, yeah. when, and it was all work. It was no play when, when the tournaments were on. You know, when, when otherwise... So we, that's a misconception, that you guys were... You, you, were, you worked hard. You can't do both. You, you can't, cannot. No, it's too, too much. It's, guys are too good. And, uh, you know, it's just not, it's, it's not professional ethics. You can't do both. You know? 1982, guys are too good. Too 1981, good. guys are too good. Well, plus what happens is when uh, I had a lot of um, uh, jealousy because I was fortunate to hang out with maybe someone like Vetus. So people were very, they weren't envious. I think they were jealous. And so there was... Oh, you had people against you jealous. Oh, yeah, haters, for sure. Yeah, yeah, they, were, they, didn't, they didn't like that, you know, I was... One of his guy, one of his friends. Yeah, and they and they and they were ranked a hundred, not a hundred spots, but they're ranked forty spots higher than I was, you know, which was ridiculous. Someone that's ranked fifty in the world should be happy that they're fifty in the world, and not care about a guy that's ranked ninety or something. So did you have some static? Is that what you mean? You had some yeah. static with some guys? Yeah, but I mean, because that was because I chose though. I mean, I you know I chose that I was friends with. Well, uh, you know, well, let's say Vetus. So, but when I when I play the locker room, I, I mean, I had a couple other American friends, but it wasn't like overall. You know, people knew. Well, I had another thing where Kenny Rogers, the singer, had sponsored me. Uh, this was in 1978, 79, and 80. Kenny sponsored, Kenny sponsored me for two full years. Explain that. You got to explain that. First of all, how do you meet Kenny Rogers? Well, living in UCLA, being a tennis standout for UCLA, you know, celebrities used to come and watch the matches. And, of course, then there are the celebrities that lived in Beverly Hills that loved to play. And a gentleman introduced me to Kenny, and Kenny and I hit it off. And Kenny Rogers played tennis. Yeah, he was, and he was pretty good. But he loved it. I mean, so you know, he loved it. We would play three times a week. But I needed to get out on tour, and I didn't quite have the funds right there. And Kenny uh, offered to sponsor me, and so it was a very uh, amicable relationship that you're mutually beneficial because you know he liked to, he came to Wimbledon and watched me play. So he staked you a couple hundred grand, or he, no, you're, you're, every close. month he'd give you like you know ten grand. Like, no, how does it no, work? no, it doesn't. That's not like that. What it was is, I, I was good enough to get into the doubles, so I was guaranteed like a hotel and some money, but I needed airfare. So when I needed an airline ticket or if I needed a couple bucks, but it was not like I was on a, a oh, Got it, got it. You no, know, because it wouldn't work that way. It takes away your drive. You know, you gotta you gotta still stay hungry. 
You guys still stay hungry. Yeah, and that's so people. So some of the other players in the locker room knew that you were gone on his program. Oh, they were. They hated. They were hated that he. I mean, we were going somewhere, and he sent he sent his plane to pick me up in Cleveland. Yeah, he sent the jet to pick me up, and I just I took I took I think my friend John Sodry with me. John Sodry. John Sodry. Yeah, he and I play. I said he we, we played doubles at uh, the National Twenty Ones. We won the National Twenty One Hardcourt Championships. And that was on Sunday. Kenny sent that, and I said, "Look, just just stop giving me a hard time and just come with me, man. You know, I can put you on this plane." So, so it was kind of one. But you know, it used to kind of bother him even too. And we were playing together. It was just like, because I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't. It's hard to do both. Sometimes there's only one seat, you know, and and, and, and that happens. So it sounds to me like your L.A. groove at some point sort of muddled the water or. Uh, made things a little bit more oh, complicated sure. in terms of having a single mind of focus to play pro tennis. Well, sure. It took, you know, I was always very motivated, but once I did, I will say once I did have a sponsor, I, I mean, it took a little of the pressure off and I think it took a little bit of the drive off too. It wasn't like I was having to think about next month's rent. You know, I knew that it was going to happen regardless if I, I won today or not, you know, or stuff like that. So, that's the important thing is to keep that drive and keep that uh, motivation. And, you know, but Kenny came to Wimbledon, watched me play, and, you know, he, he loved it. So well, I, I wouldn't have changed a thing. He, and uh, it was great times. No regrets. No regrets. Do you think you got the most out of your pro tennis? I, that's a very good question. In all fairness, I, I was close. I mean, there were certain uh, limitations I had. I didn't learn, I didn't know how to hit a running forehand. I couldn't run through the ball like a Pete Sampras or a Vitas, you know, and without that, there's limitations of certain shots I, I did have. I think I could have been a top maybe 50 player. Uh, that would have been about it maxed out because, you know, there were, there were some holes in my game as far as, uh, you know, my, my, my not my athletic skills, but as far as movement overall. I was good at the net, but as far as if you could keep me back, and if you could keep me out there long enough, I didn't want to be there. You know, I just, I don't, you know, I, I wasn't, I was, I thought I was a scrapper. I thought I was a digger, but that's, that wasn't my style. The guys are that good too. It wasn't my style to dig and scrap. Did you sort of fade off the tour or did you just sort of shut it down? I, once again, I got, met a guy that, um, uh, through Vetus and McEnroe, a, a big guy in New York that was a realtor that uh, offered me to be his pro. So, you know. Who's I, that? Uh, his name was Marty Rains. Marty Rains, that's a famous name, Marty Rains. Sure it is. And uh, so I, I was his pro for a couple of years, and I moved to New York, and basically I left the tour behind, and I lived like a prince in New York City for a few years. Where'd you live? Second and 49th Street by Smith & Walensky's there, and that's on, right there on the corner. And then Tony I, Graham. And what about uh, what about Maxwell's Plum? Did you go to Maxwell's sure. Plum? Yeah, I lived down there, village there too. I was down at Fourth and Mercer. They had a nice a nightclub down there called the Bottom Line. I lived by there, and yeah, I lived at a, a few different places, uh, which was great in New York. Now, were you ever part of this Huggy Bear crew? Somehow that just eclipsed. I left New York in '85, and once I left New York, I was pretty much didn't have that New York connection. Now I've been told. At some juncture, you had a business card that said that you were the pro at the mansion. <laughs> the Playboy Mansion? You said it. Playboy Mansion. <laughs> Is that a fact? Well, I was, uh, I, uh, yeah, how would I say it? I guess I was, a, I taught, yeah, I was a tennis pro at the Playboy Mansion. I mean, I didn't, I didn't give lessons per se. I mean, you know, I would, I would hit with the girls if half asked me to. I mean, I was, you know, and that got me into the parties. It was a very... Cohesive uh, relationship, but uh, now, now, do you do you do you know Hugh Hefner? Do you have a fluid? Sure. Yeah, sure, I did, and his brother too. I had a very good relationship with his brother Keith, and I miss how did both. you meet? The, how do you meet these? How do you meet this crew? Same kind of Kenny Rogers resources through that whole Vetus. You know, it's like that whole kind of cream that rises to the top. I was just, I was just hanging on someone's shirt tail until, until, until I fell off at the Playboy Mansion. Well, people must really <laughs> like you. You must be a very, uh, you must be a very uh, congenial fellow to have. Uh, and what was that like, man? Teaching tennis. I mean, being at the tennis club at the mansion. That was fun. I was there every Sunday. Uh, maybe during the week, I'd hit with Keith too, and we'd have lunch. Keith Hefner. Keith Hefner. Yeah, we'd you have lunch on, at the mansion. Yeah, that was great. We'd go in and order whatever you wanted, and uh, sit. And then sometimes his brother, 
uh, Hugh would come in and sit with us, and it was great being able to talk to you know Hugh in a, a very candid conversations. Or talked about his old TV shows, Playboy After Dark, and uh, you know his move to L.A. from Chicago. And yeah. I was always pretty on top of those things. That I knew if I was going to be around someone of that stature, I was. I had a couple questions I wanted to ask, and made it more interesting for me. Nice. You've had a uh, vigorous life in tennis. Well, tennis, I've, tennis has taken me some places. You know, it's been good to me, but I've been good to it. Uh, I've been very lucky. You know, I, I, I think you want to figure out where you want to be. I mean, I, I, I think if I was a head pro at a club in Montana, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, even, I would not be happy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much happier teaching at a private court up here on the hill in Beverly Hills and finding my own clientele. Hey, man, now not to mention, you listen, you played tennis all over the world professionally. You've done a lot of stuff. I mean, if somebody wants the Beverly Hills tennis experience, there's nothing like this. Oh, this is a, not a bad place to hang my hat, as they say. This is pretty amazing. Let's go to our fourth set. We call this the 10-ball scramble. It's not a deep dive. I say something, and you say, what comes into your mind, okay? You ready? Yes. Favorite city? Vegas. Favorite tournament? U.S. Open. Best player party? Alan King Tennis Classic, Las Vegas. Um, that's a, we haven't heard that one before. <laughs> that's, the, that's the old, that's the, that's the real thing right there. <laughs> Where'd that take place? Caesars Palace. They used to put up the players there, and uh, they used to give all the players free room and board. So the players were, could eat for free at Caesars. It was quite an event. Jimmy Connors. Great champion. John McEnroe. Uh, unique, unique champion. Vetus Carolitis. One of a kind. NCAA. Should have won it. ATP. Great organization. Do you really believe that or are you just... just no. <laughs> You no, don't believe that? No, I think they could do more for the players, really, overall. But I think it's a double standard there. Davis Cup. Davis Cup's fantastic, but I think it's, it's, it's getting diminished, what's happened. Labor Cup. Now, Labor Cup is a lot of fun. It's a fantastic thing. It brings everybody together, players from different countries. You're never going to see things like that with Rafa and Federer on the same team. And then both coaching the players. It's amazing the energy and the synergy that the Labor Cup has captured. Tony Graham hot on Labor Cup. Oh. And that's got the flash and dash you like, too. Oh, man. I, you know, I can't believe I haven't made it to one yet. Next year, I've got to go to Boston. Um, your favorite restaurant in the world? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Okay, let's go favorite restaurant in L.A. Hmm. I have to say Mastro Steakhouse. Favorite restaurant in New York? It's called the Eel of Capri. It's Italian. The Isle of Third Capri. Third Isle of Capri on 3rd and 61st. That's an old school spot. It sure is. Favorite court? It's got to be Club James. James Goldstein's court in Beverly Hills. Let's move into our fifth set. This is what we call the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could just, you know, take the racket and make a change with one swing without any aggravation, what would you do? What would it be? I would uh, vote for all players having equal insurance in the association and also that there shouldn't be any double standard, which is impossible because the top players are always going to get treated better than the lower ranked players. Uh, but, you know, as much as they could equalize things, uh, that would be the better. Tony Graham searching for some equality out of the uh, association. Absolutely. I, I, I know that that was a big problem when I played. Uh, the players were able to go to, let's say, uh, Hugo Boss, uh, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, and the top guys were getting super deals on that. And then they weren't offering that to the uh, younger or lower ranked players until finally it became exploited. And then, then uh, Mercedes had to offer the same deal to pretty much all the top 200 players. And then at which time Mercedes-Benz uh, just stepped out of that whole uh, arena because they, they didn't feel like having to give that many discounts. I have a great story from Porsche. Is uh, We went to the Porsche factory uh, and um, I met the guy, Mr. Monfred Yonke. Hey, so you were in Stuttgart. Stuttgart. We did Bob Lingen, did the track. 
But you were there playing a tournament. Yes. Stuttgart tournament. Yes. It was a long time tournament. Yes. But it was, it's, and Porsche's there or Mercedes is? They're both there. Okay. And so uh, Vitas and I went to the Porsche factory one day and I met the guy and uh, bought a Porsche. Uh, gave me a great deal on a Porsche because I was a nice guy, I guess. I don't know, but I think it was just because with Vitas. But then he told the story that Jimmy Connors was there. And Jimmy Connors was number one in the world at the time. And Jimmy Connors had asked for a deal on the Porsche. And uh, this gentleman, Mr. Yonke, said, uh, uh, Mr. Connors, we have all kinds of famous people who drive Porsche. You don't get a discount. So I felt quite honored that I got a discount. <laughs> they, they made Jimmy pay full freight. If, yeah, if he wanted it. Yeah, I don't know if he ended up buying one. It, it was... He didn't get he didn't get his discount. So, do you have a fluid relationship with Jimmy? I you know I did get along with him at one time, and then for some reason I, I, it was soured. I don't know what happened. I just think that look, they say it for any great player, you can't be friends with the other players, really. Tony Graham, you know, I'd only heard about you. I never really got this opportunity to spend any time. Can't thank you enough. This has been a blast, and you really are. Uh, an L.A. tennis uh, institution. Enjoyed the podcast. Enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. Thank you, Craig. All right, my man. You are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Tony Graham. If you want to take a lesson with him or play at the Sheets Goldstein Court, shoot us a note and we'll connect you. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. And if you want your own free Takini warm-up suit, head to Instagram, follow Under Review Tennis and Sergio Takini Official, like our giveaway post, and tag a friend who loves tennis and Takini. And in the holiday spirit, we'll be announcing the winner on Christmas Day. Good luck. And also, listen, that's super soon, so do not sleep on this. Jump on that contest. Huge thank you to our Patreon patron, Ally Bell. Alan, first of all, I'm looking forward to playing a match. We're not just going to practice. If you want to get it on at Malibu Racket, let me know. Otherwise, I will see you on the East Coast soon. If you want to join the Under Review family and get cool perks, please head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. Thank you to James Goldstein. Listen, Jimmy, we are available for any and all available courtside events. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.